thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died, and when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Edomite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments and put on a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, for she had covered her face. He went over to her on the, at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adumalite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he could not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the harlot who was at Enaim by the wayside? And they said, No harlot has been there has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. And also the men of the place said, No harlot has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things at her own, lest we be laughed at. You see, I sent this kid, and you could not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, and moreover she is with child by harlotry. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Mark, I pray you, who, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not lie with her again. When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and bound on his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. 
All right, so again, as I said earlier, this is a break from the story of Joseph. And as usual in the book of Genesis and most scripture, when you see such breaks, there is an indication something really important is going on here. And we're going to have to understand why the story is inserted at this juncture and how it relates to the story of Joseph. But as you can see from the whole sordid affair that is happening here, we're dealing with morality, right? We're dealing with moral issues. <coughs> Furthermore, you can notice that over and over again, ever since Adam and Eve, remember, when Adam and Eve came out of the garden, the very first sin committed by Cain was what? Murder. Right? Murder. And after the flood, what was the very first sin committed? After the flood. By Ham. Noah's son. Right? It's a sin of lust. He went into his mother to assert his right. So it's a sin of lust. And ever since, this has been pursuing us. He did it. Right? He committed that sin. Who committed the same sin not too long ago? Reuben. Reuben did the same thing. Yeah? Reuben did the same thing. Who else did this? A sin related to lust. Within the Jacob's narrative. With Dina. Exactly. Right? So you see that with the writer... The, 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 the writer of the book of Genesis is very much concerned with this issue of lust. And today, it's compounded. We have Onan, and then we have Judah. Right? Both of them fall into lust. Now, why is that important? There, there are a number of reasons, obviously. The first one is um, in one apparition of Our Lady to St. Teresa of Avila, I will need to confirm this, but that's my recollection. I have to go back and confirm it. Apparently, Our Lady have told St. Teresa of Avila that more people go to hell because of lust than any other sin. More people go to hell because of lust than any other sin. Now, we don't even need that saying of Our Lady to be aware of this. Right? In our current time, we uh, lust is literally out of control. We've reached such levels that it's literally out of control. One aspect in which lust manifests itself very, very strongly among the youth is masturbation. And that is a topic we're going to have to talk about because it relates to what Onan was doing. Another one that is manifesting itself is obviously the, the disorder in society today and confusion around the, the concept of marriage, what marriage means. Uh, half of those who are married have lived together before marriage. And the trend is increasing. <clears throat> and I think less than half of those who live together are married today. And that trend is increasing as well. Um, the other way in which we see, we see, we see lust, and it's, a, it's obviously an aggravating trend, is amongst our, the way we are now dressing our teenagers and even the way we dress girls who are 12 years old, 11 years old. 
um, <clears throat> even during Holy Week, during Mass, um, there were two um, 13-year-old, I think, maybe certainly not older than 14-year-old, uh, dressed with miniskirts, extremely short miniskirts. But that trend about lust and, um, has reached such peaks in our society today that there is now confusion about the sexes. There's a profound confusion about the meaning of gender. What is it to be a woman and what is it to be a man? And it manifests itself in multitudes of ways. And the end result of it all is that most people are unhappy because living out this, in, in this constant disorder related to lust makes you unhappy. We're going to go through some of those items. I can't right now in today's talk uh, delve too deep into this, but after the end of the book of Genesis, I will be, having, I'll be posting two talks on the website, and these will be for free, on this specific topic. And they're going to be, I'll tell you right now, they're going to be very controversial for our time, because most people have, have really hard issues with these, with these problems. They are related to, they're going to be touching upon this issue that I brought up back about uh, six months ago, and I had a very strong reaction for the women about pants and women. It's going to talk about the, the covers of the head, and what does it mean for a woman to, be, to have her head covered in a church. It's going to talk about the role of women in general in society, and touch upon this whole issue of lust and roles of men and women. I've been spending quite a bit of time gathering uh, references and documents and reflecting upon this. So I'll point it out to you when it's ready. Today I'm just going to be focusing on the specific issue at hand that we see here with Onan, and we're going to talk about that. And you will see that the explanation that is given today is not the one you'd think would be given about this passage because of all the disorder we have. All right. Be well, yes, well, be, because number one, it's, uh, it's, a, its impact on our life is very profound. And number two, so I gave you the negative reason. Thank you for bringing me back to my earlier point. But the positive one is that lust is really the, um, if you will, it's the deformation of something that is very, very good. And that's the other point I wanted to make, right? And what is that deformation that, is, that I'm talking about? It's, I'm talking about sex. Sex is very, very very good. And this is not my position. This is the position of the church. Okay? In the Catholic Church, there is no separation between sex and prayer. Sex is the prayer of the body. That's how it's supposed to be. It's very good. Why? Genesis. God created men and women. Men and women created them. What did he say after that? There was very good. That includes sex. All right? So we, we su we've suffered in past centuries, in the past century, we've suffered from what? Especially this country. From um, Puritanism. Right? Puritanism locked sex in the little room, like, you know, the crazy ant, and you'd go there maybe once every year, and that's about it. Just got to remind me of the story that I tell occasionally about this professor who, who's, who is talking to uh, couples about sex. And he says, I'd like to know, what is the, um, the frequency of relationship you have in families? How many of you, uh, wife and husband, uh, come together three times a week? And a bunch of people raise their hands. How many come together once a week? 
again, another group. How about, how about once a month? Once every six months? Once a year? And there's a guy in the back, raises his hand, he goes, me, 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 me. And he says, I'm sorry, sir, I'm kind of a little bit confused. You seem very happy about it. Yes, I am. Why? It's today. It's today. <laughs> Puritanism. And the reason why we laugh is because Puritanism is well and alive still, except in its opposite form, right? So the pendulum has completely swung from Puritanism, right, which is everything that's related to the body, we have to, ooh, it's, uh, you know, we, we can't go there, to now the exact opposite, right? So on one hand, you have Puritanism, on the other hand, you have pornography. Both of them are extremes, and both of them are bad, and both of them have only taken a sliver of the truth and exaggerated and dropped everything else. Why? Because in a foundational sense, we do not understand sex. And that's why John Paul II will be, I'm hoping, I'm thinking, this is my own personal opinion, John Paul II will be one day declared as doctor of the church because of his theology of the body. And if you want a great reference on that, Christopher West. Look up Christopher West, Theology of the Body. If you haven't listened to his tapes, listen to his tapes. I can't do him justice. I'm not going to be duplicating what he's talking about. But he's a great reference on that topic. He does a wonderful job at presenting the theology body by John Paul II. But I had had couples that come to me, at least um, uh, some men came to me after Bible study who told me that their wives would not have relations with him because, you know, sex is uh, dirty. Devout couples. The parents of um, St. Thérèse de Lisieux, right, when they got married, did not have relations at the beginning. And it took really robust spiritual direction from their spiritual director to change things. And thank God, sex is very good. And look, the result, you had a wonderful saint. Right? Sex is good in the context of marriage. Keep that in mind. Right? It has its proper place. So, this, this is why this chapter is really important for us. But before we, go, we delve into this, the very first question we need to ask ourselves is, what does this chapter have to do in this narrative of Joseph? I mean, we just left Joseph hanging out there, being sold as a slave, right? So in one sense, from a narrative point of view, you might think it's a, sort of a cliffhanger. You left him out there, and now you're talking about something else, right? But is that it? Is that it's just a stylistic way of presenting the truth? Do you think... That's what the intent here is? Switching from Joseph to Judah, right in the middle of it? What do you think? So let me ask you this question. Why is this chapter inserted right here in the narrative about Joseph? Anybody has uh, an idea? Is it to clarify that the line is going to come from Judah, not Joseph? There is some, a bit of a truth in that, and we're going to get to it. Yes, this is important. Uh, why is it important? Because... The prophecy given to Abraham and to, Je- and to Jacob was that kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. What happened to the kingdom of Israel after the death of Solomon, the son of David? What happened to the king- kingdom? No, it didn't stop. It split into what? Judah, down south. Israel, up north. And what was the... Sin- um, what was the synonymous title to the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Joseph, as is called in Ezekiel chapter 10? Right? So the northern kingdom was known as the kingdom of Joseph. The southern kingdom was known as 
the kingdom of Judah. So Joseph and Judah are prominent figures. So yes, the story about Judah is reflecting that. But is that it? The key question for us, why tell us the story about Judah now in chapter 38? Put differently, could the narrator have told us the story about Joseph, about Judah, before starting the story about Joseph? Right? He told us about Jacob. Now, Judah is the fourth son of Jacob. Right? He could have started with Judah. Here's what happened to Judah. Okay, close the story. We stop right here. And now let's talk about Joseph. Could he have done that? Okay. What happened to, to Judah in the story here? Yeah, before he commits a sin, what happened to him? He loses two sons. Might there be a, a relation between Judah losing two sons and the way he treated his brother? What do you think? Might there be a covenantal relationship between the way Judah treated his brother and the curses of the covenant that are triggered? And the fact that he loses two sons? Yeah. That's why the story had to be told now, not before. What the narrator is bringing to our attention is again the way the covenant works. He sold his brother into slavery. What happened to two of his sons? But before they died, think about their behavior. So what are they? They are slaves. Do you see the relationship? Why the story is told now? Here's the mirror image, Judah, of how you behaved to your, your brother. You sold him into slavery. You ended up with two boys who were both slaves to sin. Yeah? Okay. That's the covenant for you. Without the covenant, there is no key to explain why the story is inserted right here. You have to come up with elaborate discussion over, well, you know, uh, we're breaking the story here because it's a cliffhanger, and now we're going to talk about Judah because this is important to Joseph, and it leaves us dissatisfied. Because otherwise, you can slide that story anywhere you want. You can put it before, you can put it after. It seems to make no difference. Once you introduce the covenant, it makes perfect sense. You are rising in prominence. We know the king will come from you. What is the role of the firstborn, the spiritual firstborn? What is he supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be taking care of his brothers. Yeah? Did he? No. He was callous about it. He sold his brother. He had no problem with that. Yeah? We need to be aware and recognize the rectitude, the honesty of the narrator. He is most likely a Jew from the house of Judah. And he says it the way it is. Go back and scan ancient documents. Scan ancient documents and try to find the same honesty, the same rectitude, the same clarity of thought. You will not. That's why we call them holy writers, because they had God in mind as they wrote Scripture, not men. How many would tell about their own people and their own ancestor, the founder of their nation, and say how he conducted himself? How many? Go back and read the stories of founders. 
Read the stories of Romulus and Remulus in Rome. Read the stories of the Chinese founders. Read the stories of the founders here. All that is spoken about them is spoken in glowing terms. Only in scripture will you find this kind of honesty. All right. That's why the story is told here about Judah. Now, what is really important for us, if you go to the book of Matthew, anyone has scripture with you? Go to the book of Matthew. I want to point something out to you that will make more sense now than it did before. In the, in the genealogy, chapter 1 in the book of Matthew, Abraham was the father of Isaac. So, Matthew starts his genealogy with Abraham because he's talking to the Jews. Luke starts it with, actually go, goes back up all the way to Adam because he's talking to the Gentiles. And that's the different focus between the two. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Notice, Judah and his brothers. So who is the spiritual leader here? Judah. This man that we just saw, he's the spiritual leader, right? Judah and his brothers. Not Judah, Joseph, and his, Judah and his brothers. He completely omits Joseph. You notice? Yeah. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You've heard this many times in the genealogy. You probably never noticed the irony. Now you know. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Who's Tamar? His daughter-in-law. Matthew did this explicitly to rebuke the Jews who were saying that Mary was pregnant with a Roman soldier. From a Roman soldier. It's actually... That text, this interpretation, is still in some, of the, um, in some of the Mishnah among the Jews today. They have not taken that out. They say that still today. So, his point to them is, oh, okay, so you're trying to discredit Jesus through his genealogy. Alright, let's take a look at our genealogy. Notice, he, noted, he, he mentions Tamar right here. By the way, who is Tamar? The daughter of who? I mean, um, who did he marry, first of all? Judah. Who did he marry? We're going to go through the text. Canaanite. Oh, Judah is marrying a, a what? Canaanite. Canaanite, go back to Canaan. Who's Canaan? The son of Ham. Yeah, and who did Noah curse? Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. So what are you supposed to do, Mr. Judah? Are you supposed to marry Canaanite? Ah. And they don't even name the woman. They only name her as the daughter of Shua. They name her mother, not her. We just read it in the scripture today. Why? Why does he do it this way? I'll tell you why. How do you say daughter in, in Hebrew? Bat. Bat. Now put the two words together. What do you get? Batshua. There was another woman who was also called Batshua. You know who she is? A certain Batsheba. She's also named in the same way. So anyone reading this text will go, ting, ting. Shades of David. What Judah did, David did again. Now notice in this genealogy, we have Tamar mentioned, one of the women. 
And then he goes through the list, Tamar and then Perez, the father of, uh, of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. So Perez is in the direct line of Jesus. So his, Matthew, St. Matthew's point is, you see that? He's in, your, he's in the line of David. You have no problem with David. And he's in the line of David. Now, notice what he does. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even name her. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David! The wife of Uriah? Yeah, that's how he names it. So this is the second woman. And uh, the third one is further down. And it is, um, I'm sorry, yeah, it's, it's Ruth. And, um, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And who's Ruth? A foreigner. A foreigner. So, what is Matthew's point? Okay, let's see. We've got three women. One, in the case of uh, harlotry. The other was in the case of uh, harlotry. And the third is a foreigner. Okay? And then look what he does at the end of the genealogy. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. He mentions her husband, and he says she, he was born from her. And he's saying, ting, ting, father, husband, wife, and Christ was born of her. Not, and Joseph, and, uh, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the father of Jesus. He stops at Joseph, he indicates he was her husband, but he uses this uh, paraphrase where he says he was born of her. Why is he saying that? I mean, could Jesus have been born of Joseph? No. Why does he indicate that? He indicates the virginal conception. This is what's going on in this genealogy. Right? There's more going on in this genealogy that I can cover right now. just want to point out to you how important this text is. Alright. So again, let's go through this. So it happened at that time. What time? after he had sold his brother, that Judah went down from his brothers. What does went down from his brothers means? He separated himself from his brothers. He's supposed to lead them. Instead, he separates himself from them. Presumably over the fact that uh, Joseph was sold into slavery. This must have caused some rift between the brothers. And turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So, a man of Adulam is sitting in the northern sector of the Judean Shephelah, lowland, about nine miles northeast of modern Beit Guvrin. This was a Canaanite royal city that was captured by Joshua and made part of the tribal inheritance of Judah. And it was also associated with the life of David. The point here is that uh, the reason why this is important for us is that it indicates the great antiquity of the text. This is not a modern text. Because Judah is a wanderer in his own territory. He's not walking around as a conqueror. He has not conquered the land. These are all geographical locations that belong to the territory of Judah. But he's there anonymously. He does not belong. And um, he marries basically a Canaanite. And so the interesting thing is that the um, Jewish commentators, being conscious of later prohibition that were given in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 and 3, against marrying the Canaanites. Right? So remember, this text is penned in Babylon. 
way later, way after all these events have taken place. Right? The Jews now, the tribe of Judah, the remnant of the tribe of Judah, are in exile in Babylon. They've lost the temple. They've lost the territory. There is no more king, as far as they can tell. And they are living in exile in Babylon. And, he's, and this, is, this text is being penned. And he has to tell them, oh, he married a Canaanite. Right? It'd be like um, if you had a prohibition against, uh, uh, just to illustrate how powerful it is, you know, there is in the United States a prohibition against slavery, and you have to say that um, you know the president has had a slave. That's how strong this is. It, in a sense, it's even stronger than that. It takes real courage and honesty to write the text. But the commentators, the Jewish commentators later, when they read this text, um, decided that uh, the, the Hebrew, Kenani, which is Canaanite, should be understood here in a sense of merchant. They switched the meaning from Canaanite, as we understand it, to that of a merchant. So strong was their own reluctance to admit that Judah could have actually done such a thing. Because even though the prohibition came in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it was already in existence by Noah. Right, when he pronounced that curse against Canaan and all of his line. So Reuben married a Canaanite, and so did, so did uh, Judah. Now, why do you think they married a Canaanite? Why did they do that? Was it that the Canaanite had a higher IQ, you think? Did he marry her because she had a PhD in social psychology? Maybe for monetary, but what is the more prosaic reason that he married her? That's it. That's it. It's lust. The fact that she can go over a prohibition that is so strong and incur the curse, you must be driven by something that overrides your reason. See, this is the problem with, with all our you know, concupiscence. Concupiscence is the umbrella that speaks of disorder in our passions. Sometimes concupiscence is used as synonymous with lust. But more often than not, concupiscence is an umbrella that speaks of our disorder, of the disorder in our passion. Right? And the three most prevalent disorders <clears throat> are as follows. Lust, as it relates to the uh, sexual faculty. The second one that is hardly ever spoken of and hardly ever confessed, and yet committed very frequently. Adultery is actually one of the action related to lust. Something very basic. Gluttony. Eating too much. Gluttony. Ever, hardly ever confessed by anyone. Eating too much. Right? So the disorder of gluttony is far more prevalent than we think. I'll give you examples how it manifests itself. You're preparing food. You're preparing food to be served at a table. And as you're preparing the food, right? you made a bowl of salad and you have other things ready to go. And as you prepare the food, you're nibbling from the plates. You're nibbling from the bowl of salad. That's gluttony. You're not eating at the right time in the right way. You're not respecting food, the gift of God. You haven't even blessed the food and you're already eating. Why? You're driven by that disorder. You can't control yourself. That's gluttony. You eat too fast. It's gluttony. Obviously, you eat too much. 
is gluttony. How do you know if you're eating too much? We think that we, we know that we eat too much when it hurts. But that's not true. It is not true. I mean, it is true, but it's not the only way. That's the extreme way. The right way is to know how much you need to eat. And eat no more. Do you know how much you need to eat? Gluttony is committed far more often than we think, and it is hardly ever confessed. If you're not keeping count of the calories, and a rule of thumb is very easy. You know, there's a rule of thumb out there. You can find it, but it's like if you weigh, uh, if your ideal weight needs to be, I don't know, let's say 100 pounds. I'm just using 100 as an example because it's easy. Then you should be eating, what, 100 calories or maybe 120 calories, something like that. There's a relationship. Don't quote me on it. I'm no, you know. But there is a relationship between your weight and an, and the calorie count that you, yeah, a thousand. I'm sorry. Yeah, a thousand. As I said, don't quote me on this. I mean, I know what my calorie count is, but don't quote me on what the rule is. I figured it out and uh, for myself, forgot the rule. But ha- have you looked into this? Do you know how much you should be eating? Right? Weight Watchers would be an example. I mean, all these... And and I'll tell you right now, the reason why people are not able to lose weight and keep it is because of the disorder in their souls. Now, there are people who have medical issues. Let's leave them aside, right? I'm not talking about them. Yeah, medical issues that is completely, you know, wrapping your system, hormonal imbalances, this and any other, different issue. I'm talking, generally speaking, somebody's trying to lose the weight they can't keep. Why? There is a disorder in the soul. Gluttony. Yes, yes. The refrigerator becomes your sanctuary instead of God. Very well put. The only thing I will add to what you said, I agree with what you said. The only thing I would say is that the emotional issue is really a manifestation of the disorder in our faculties. And it is itself a syndrome, maybe, of the spiritual root cause that needs to be addressed. But most often than not, we encounter it in emotional in the emotional realm. I completely agree with you on that. So anyhow, gluttony is the second, and the third is what Fatty was alluding to at the rational, the will level. It is impatience and anger. Those are the most common form of, um, or the the, the 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 ones that you find uh, they're very prevalent among many all of us, right? Lust, gluttony, impatience, anger, and then you have others like rash judgment and. You know, everything the right But those are, if in your life today, if right now you're not doing examination of conscience, if you're not examining your conscience every day and determine where you stand in relationship to these vices or their virtues, the, uh, you know, lust, right? Um, the, the, um, the opposite is obviously purity. Gluttony would be self-control. Patience, Right? And then, um, or, or moderation for gluttony, I'm sorry, moderation, and patience, and meekness for anger, the virtues. If you don't even know those words, if you don't even know the vices and the virtues, if you do not know where you stand in your life in regards to all of those things, you could say all the rosaries you want. You can come to Mass every day. You can go do confession every day. It's not going to serve you much because you're not doing the work that the sacraments enable you to do. You understand? This is how morality and, and scripture and theology are related. You must do this work. 
examination of conscience. It is very important for your spiritual growth. Without it, there is no growth. Simple as that. All right. So anyhow, he married again and I, the daughter of Shua. I told you a little bit about the name, the daughter of Shua, Bathsheba. In 1 Chronicles 2.3, she's called Bathsheba, the Canaanite woman. And Bathsheba, David's wife, also appears in the variant form Bathsheba in 1 Chronicles 3.5. So in 1 Chronicles 3.5, Bathsheba was called Bathsheba. Right? So that name resonates very, very strongly amongst the Jews because they, they know what Bathsheba represents. Trouble. Right? Who was Bathsheba? The wife of Uriah. Right? The guy that David killed in cold-blooded murder. Yeah? So they know right away, when you read this verse, you go, uh-oh, buckle up. Here we go again. The spiritual oldest son is about to crash. And that's what happens. All right, verse 3. Um, I'm not going to you know, spend a lot of time on this, but some manuscripts, and, and instead of saying, and she conceived the bore son, and he called his name Ur, some manuscript will say, and she called his name, or she named him Ur, just as is said in verse 4. Again, she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Among the Canaanites, the woman tend to give the name, not the man. The indication here is that in that marriage, any time a relationship is driven by lust, it is disordered. Once it's disordered, what happens is, as Christopher West quoted somebody saying, I don't know who, uh, you know, men uses, what is it again? Men uses emotions to get to sex, and women use sex to get to emotions. So in a, in a lust-driven relationship, all that matters is using the other as an object. Right? You have an itch, this person can scratch it for you, so you're just going to use them as an object. And when you're done and you're bored with this person, you can go over to another one. That's how lust functions. There is no lasting relationship. There is no lasting love that is fostered and grown as the two are together, etc. Right? And that is why it's so important for us to understand that being married in the church is a vastly different marriage than when you married out there. When you married before a court or in non, in, you know, outside the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, meaning outside of the sacraments, you're not receiving the graces that flow from the sacraments. You don't have a sacramental marriage. Therefore, it is quite a bit more hard for you to live truly a, a fruitful and marriage that leads to holiness when you're living apart from the from the covenant. Not that this marriage is not recognized. The church recognizes non-Catholic marriages between non-Catholic people. But it's simply a much harder undertaking because you don't have the sacraments to support you, to help you fight against lust, to help you purify your intention, to become truly a son and daughter of God as marriage is intended to turn you into. Right? So, here in this case, you can see that he himself, even though he married her, he was not able to bring her to live according to his custom. She kept her custom. And more often than not, where the heart of the woman is, more often than not, where the heart of the woman is, there is the hearts of the daughters. And where the heart of the man is, there is the hearts of the guys, the boys. 
Right? So oftentimes you see families kind of split. The mother is going to church and the daughters follow, more or less. The boys take after the dad. Ur has no real interpretation of the name, his first son. However, it was probably understood to mean watchful or vigilant. Uh, there is a midrash. A midrash is a, is a sort of a homily on scripture uh, among the Jews. And in, uh, in Targum Jonathan, which is, a, a, again, an analysis of the text, connected with Hebrew, ariri, or childless. But it's mostly based on uh, um, similarity, not on anything more profound than that. Onan, possibly understood to mean vigorous. Um, and Sheila might mean drawn out, meaning out of the womb. But again, we don't have definitive etymologies of the names. But anyhow, Judah had three uh, boys, Ur, Onan, and Sheila. Now, um, again, Shezib, they, they, they specifically state in verse 5 that she was at Shezib when she had Sheila. And the reason why this is mentioned is because she, uh, Shezib was situated in the territory of Judah, southwest of Adullam. And uh, the Shilonites, that is uh, the, the folks who came from Shil, the Shilonites, included the Kozuba amongst the descendants, as mentioned in Chronicle 4.22. Okay, I'm not going to go through all of this. Just know that um, there is traceability from Shila and Shezib all the way down to the tribes, and it's an important location. So, again, the Jews reading this would have understood what the implication is. For us, it is not as important. I'm not going to spend time on this. Now, um, at a biblical time, during the, the, this time, it was the custom of the father to select a bride for his son, and he did so. He picked Tamar. Now, the word means a palm tree, uh, and as a personal name, it appears in the Bible only in a Davidic family. And interestingly enough, Tamar, David's daughter, was the one who was what? Raped by one of David's sons. That's another story we'll get to later. So again, it's a name that echoes. And Tamar, you should recognize the name if you speak Arabic. Tamar. Exactly. That's the same word. We say it in an English way, so it's translated. But really, the name is Tamar. That's her name. Right? Um, and it appears as it only in the Davidic family. We don't know what Ur did, which is very interesting. Ur, Judah's firstborn. Did you key on this? We know Ur was his firstborn. Why is the narrator telling us Judah's firstborn? Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked. Here we go again. The firstborn is wicked. Yeah? So what? Prepare to crush. Now we're going through and trying to see who's going to be the one in the lineage of Judah that is going to be spiritual leader. Why is that supremely important? Because out of him will come the Messiah. Right? So he has three sons right now. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So first we go with Ur. We don't know what he did, but he was wicked. Now, this is not used in the modern way we use wicked. doesn't mean he was great. He was... Um, very disordered. So we don't know what it was, but the fact that it is not mentioned is very important because the narrator is telling us, I, my intention is not to draw your attention to what he did. This is irrelevant. 
to what I'm trying to tell you. All you need to know is that he was wicked. And we'll leave it at that. Right? The interesting thing is um, that um, the word displeasing, so one, one, one way of saying is that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. And the word displeasing in the Hebrew is ra, which is the inversion of the word ur. Right? And that indicates a complete disorder. So it's a way the Hebrews would indicate when something completely disordered when they reverse it. Right? So we don't know really what... Uh, he probably had a disordering of nature. So what it is, we don't know. We're not going to we'll leave it at that. Interestingly enough, according to some of the Jewish uh, um, commentator, it could be that he refused to consummate the marriage, perhaps simply wishing to avoid having children. According to rabbinic tradition, Ur did not want Tamar's beauty to be marred by pregnancy. He was enjoying himself too much. That's how the rabbis interpreted it. We don't know. Be it as it may, God slew him. Now, the death of Ur without a son made Onan subject to the Leverett law. Marriage between a man and his brother's wife was strictly forbidden in the Pentateuchal legislation of Leviticus 18.16 and 20.21. So, in, in the Pentateuch, in, the, in the Leviticus, the book of the Levites, it was absolutely forbidden for a man to marry his uh, sister-in-law. He could not do it with one exception. And now it's called the Leverett Law. Even if he was married, even if he was married, essentially what he's doing is acting as a surrogate father for his brother. For his brother. The intent, remember, for the Jews, back then there is no heaven. At that, point, at that point in time. Therefore, the continuation of the line is supremely important. Hence, it was seen as an act of charity to continue the line of your brother so that his name may be remembered. That's what's intended here. Okay? That's what was intended. And levir, the word vir is, is Latin, the root of the word for virtue. And what does vir mean in Latin? Man. A vir is a man, from which we get the word virtue. Le vir is the brother of the man. That was, that's what it was called, the leverat law. It has nothing to do with Levi. If you thought it had something to do with Levi, nothing at all. It's just a Latin word. All right. Now, according to Deuteronomy 25.5, a man has an obligation to his widowed sister-in-law. When brothers dwell together and one of them dies and leaves no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall unite with her, take her as his wife, and perform the Levire's duty. Now, this institution, the Leverett institution, long predated the law that was given by Moses. In fact, it existed among most societies that lived in that area. So, for instance, uh, the Hittite law in the 14th, 13th century BC laid down that if a married man dies, his brother shall take his wife. And if he dies, his father shall take her. Again, remember, the intent here is really to act as a surrogate father on behalf of the son who died. That was what the intent is. This is not about lust. It's not about, um, you know, some sort of... Um, uh, lustful deformation. Now, obviously, relationships in these societies are not the, the way they are today, but the intent here was really to continue the name of the one who died.
you can think of it as, in, their, in a way of looking at it as an act of mercy. That's how they would look at it. And interestingly enough, among the Hittite, the text does not distinguish between a childless widow and one who has offspring. So there is a contract from the town of Nuzi from the middle centuries of the second millennium, so about 1500 BC, specifies that should the daughter-in-law be widowed, she is to be married to the second son, and if necessary, to the others in turn. Now, there is also another more uh, financial reason. right? And that is, let's say she's married to a son. The father divided the estate. He gave the son half the estate. Now, he dies. Whoever marries the widow gets the estate. So that was also done for socioeconomical reasons to preserve the unity and keep the estate in the family. All right? Now, let's go to verse 9, which is the interesting verse. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. All right. So, how do you interpret this text? How do you understand what, is, what, is, what has been known ever since as Onanism? Why is it important to us? Because as I said to you earlier, it is related to the practice of masturbation. The Catholic Church has always taught and continues to teach that masturbation is a disorder. It is not a good thing. Okay? And we'll understand that a little bit better later. Today in schools, if you're sending your kids to public schools, and I don't know if even to some private schools, they will teach them in the sex ed that masturbation is very good. It's a way for you to do, discover your bodies, and it's very healthy. So this is not some sort of theoretical debate out there. This has impact on our children. And I would say about, um, I don't have the statistics, but I would not be surprised if a very high percentage of boys who go to public schools fall into masturbation. And uh, according to some of the statistics I've read, the um, percent of girls now in school who fall into masturbation is on the rise. This is not a small problem. This is a prevalent problem. And in fact, it is so prevalent that among some of the youth these days, they speak of it openly. So you can see that this text is at the heart of it because many mo modern um, <clears throat> exegetes, meaning those who study scripture, would not look at this text as, um, as a proof text that masturbation is sinful and that um, contraception is sinful. Rather, they would try to say that what is at play here is the fact that he refused to give his brother his due. And that's an important um, objection that we need to deal with. So how can you interpret this text? There's five ways in which you can interpret this text. In other words, why did God punish Onan for what he did? There's five ways you can look at the text. God punished Onan because he did not honor his brother. He knew that the son would be the son of his brother. He didn't care about honoring the dead and preserving their memory. and just didn't want to do it. Two, God punished Onan because he did not want to give his brother an offspring. This is slightly different. Here, the intention isn't whether he wants to honor the dead or not. He would honor somebody else's dead, but he wants to keep the whole thing for himself. He wants the property to be his own. He doesn't want to share it with an offspring. So, essentially, it's purely for economic reasons that um, um, he's, he's, uh, he wanted to do this. 
The third interpretation is that God punished Onan because he committed incest with his sister-in-law. In other words, it's a variation on the second. The fact that he didn't want to give his brother an offspring degrades this relationship to pure lust, and in which case he committed incest with his sister-in-law. He didn't go in there and... Um, um, in other words, if he didn't want to give his brother an offspring, what he should have done is flatly refuse and bear it. But instead he said, hey, I want to give my brother an offspring, but let me go have some fun. And he couldn't care less that she was his uh, sister-in-law. The fourth one is that simply he, God punished Onan because he committed the sin of masturbation, which is essentially the meaning of spilled his semen. And the fifth one is God punished Onan because he broke the covenant. And obviously, this is the one that I stick by, and I'll show you why this is the only one that really makes sense of the entire text. Let's go through this. First of all, it is obvious that the text does not make clear specifically why Onan incurs divine wrath. Let's read it again, verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did could be that he didn't want to give an offspring to his brother, or it could be because he spilled the semen, or maybe for both. Right? What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and, and he slew him also. It's not clear why, it seems, at least on first reading, why God slew him. All right. So, it could be because he was evading his duty, his liver duty with his brother. It could be because he wanted to evade his duty, and at the same time has fun. Has fun. Or it could be because... <clears throat> what he had specifically done, spilling his semen. Now, how do, you, how do you figure this one out? How do you know? So what is at issue for us is the topic of masturbation, the topic of birth control, both of them. By the way, they're related, right? Masturbation is a form of birth control. So I'm going to be quoting here from a very good article written by Brian Harrison at Living Tradition, which is www.rtforum.org. Um, I thought this was a very good article put together, and I'll add some other things to it afterwards. Let me, let me quote the following. Um, th so this is an article that's a little dated, but I think it's very um, applicable to what we're talking about. I don't know if you remember this, but under President Bill Clinton, when Clinton was president, he dismissed Dr. Jocelyn Elders. Anybody remember this event? Dr. Jocelyn Elders was dismissed as the Surgeon General of the United States because in her public statement that uh, because of her public statement that in the present in the present AIDS crisis solitary sex acts might be well discussed sympathetically in school classrooms as part of health education. And this is the General Surgeon of the United States saying we have AIDS masturbation may not be a bad thing. It should be encouraged in schools. President Clinton did the right thing and he dismissed her. However, the controversy quickly spread to Puerto Rico, where uh, Mr. Harrison resided. And while the island's health secretary, Dr. Carmen Feliciano, expressed support for Lerda's viewpoint, she did not lose her job for the statement, in spite of several calls for a dismissal on the part of Puerto, Rico, Puerto Rican church spokesmen. So you can see this is not theoretical debate. It reaches the highest level of uh, government uh, offices. Now, in the traditional Jewish commentaries, 
you go to the traditional, the ancient Jewish commentaries, there is no doubt in their mind. Onan misused the organs, gave him for propagating the race to unnaturally satisfy his own lust, and he was therefore deserving of death. And that's it. That's how the traditional Jewish interpreters see it. Modern Jewish commentators don't see it the same way. Because today, in modern Judaism, contraception is not a big deal. You're okay to contracept. And again, I can't speak uniformly because there's no one to speak uniformly about where the Jews stand. It depends on which rabbi, like the Muslims, right? There is no one Muslim religion. There is no one Buddhist religion. There is no one Jewish religion. There is no one Protestant religion. There is only one Catholic religion. Even the Orthodox don't have uniformity. Only in a Catholic church will you have uniformity. Right? So, we can't really speak in their name, but today, for instance, JPS, which is a commentary I use quite a bit, their position is, by frustrating the purpose of the Leverett institution, Onan has placed his sexual relationship with his sister-in-law in the category of incensed, a capital offense. The unusual emphasis given to the particular social-legal background of the story clearly shows that the point at issue is the Leverett obligation and not the general topic of birth control. They interpret it differently as, as related to incest and not birth control. Where do they pull this rabbit out of which hat? I don't know. Because if you notice, they say... Onan has placed a sexual relationship with his sister-in-law in a category. Yeah, a capital offense. Where did incest become a capital offense? Up to this point. It wasn't. But there is something actually in the text itself, in this chapter that we read, that is damning to this argument. What is it? There is something that happens in this chapter that actually damns this argument. What did Judah do? He committed incest. How come God didn't slew him? You see how it doesn't hold? What is the problem? Most commentary, if you read today about Onanism, what they do? They, too, they, they take a the couple of verses, and now they interpret the verses completely out of context. And then you can make them say anything you want. But when you put them back in the context of the chapter, and more importantly, in the wider context of all of Genesis, then you can give them their appropriate meaning. And that's what we're going to do. right? So, did he die because he didn't give, uh, do honor to his brother? Well, um, in order to, to see that this is not the case, we need to look at Deuteronomy. There is a penalty in Deuteronomy laid out for a brother who does not perform the leveret obligation. It is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 through 10. I'm going to read it to you. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. I read that before, and I'm going to read you the whole thing. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his brother who is dead. That's the leveret obligation. You're having a son, but it's not yours. It is a son to your brother. Therefore, this woman will have her own part of the estate guaranteed by that son. You understand why it was important? It's really part of mercy. Right? Okay. That his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, verse 7. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then here's what's going to happen to him. His brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, 
Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandals off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him that had his sandal pulled off. So what is the punishment if you refuse to do so? She goes there, she takes his sandals out, spits on him, and his name is known as the man who refused to perform this, whose sandals have been pulled off. Does he lose his life? No. More importantly, does he lose the property? No. Goes back to him. Now, usually the law in Deuteronomy is more severe than what happens right now here in Genesis. Not less. So we really fail to say how, in one case, God was so angry with Onan that he did not perform the leverage duty and he killed him and yet he permits Moses to give them this law. Now you need to remember Moses gave laws that were absolutely severe. If someone works during the Sabbath, he must be stoned. And after he gave that law, there was one boy who was actually picking some woods to start a fire on a Sabbath day. Moses brought him and they stoned him to death. So it isn't that the law of Deuteronomy or Leviticus lacked some severe punishment. But on this case, it wasn't. So you can see that that interpretation that you hear just does not hold sway in the whole context of Scripture. It just doesn't. Okay. Number one is out. out. Now, here's another important thing, is the language used. Scripture, again, you you put the text in the overall context of Scripture, you see the following. When Scripture speaks of licit, married intercourse, it only refers to it in an oblique way. He knew her, he went into her, into her he went into her tent. Right? These are the expressions that's used. For instance, uh, you can find that in um, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 22, 1 Chronicle chapter 23, verse 7. You know, knowing's one spouse is all over the place. Genesis 4, uh, Verse 17, Luke 1, 34. However, when the language becomes explicit, it is always in illicit situations. Ham saw his father's nakedness. Lying with, uncovering his nakedness. The reference is without exception to sinful, shameful behavior. Never to illicit behavior. Interestingly enough, the only other place in Scripture where Scripture speaks of um, where scripture speaks of um, explicit genital act, the voluntary emission of seed, is in Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 20. It is used prophetically and allegorically right, to talk about what? To speak of Israel's infidelity to Yahweh. And it is being denounced scathingly in terms of a shameless lust of a harlot. That's the only other reference where we see semen being mentioned. So anytime scripture mentions, goes all the way down to the physical, it's always an illicit context. When it is licit, scripture puts a veil of probity, of modesty around the act and does not go into the details. So here we see that they explicitly mention what he did. 
if the intent was to say that he actually committed incest or that he actually did not want to give a son to his brother or he wanted to keep the land, there was no need to go there. The emphasis would have been on these other aspects, not this one. Okay? That's why you can also rule them out because they simply don't stand to the actual analysis of the text in the um, overall scripture. Now, interestingly enough, another way where we speak of wasting the seed the only other place where physically the scripture speaks of wasting the seed, wasting of the seed, is in the case of a homosexual act, which is unconditionally condemned in scripture as absolutely abhorrent. So you can see the connection here between the two. We have wasting of the seed. Allegorically, it talks about Israel's harlotry and its complete condemnation. Physically, the other place we find it is when we're talking about the homosexual act. Hence, really, we have to zero in on that particular aspect, right? Wasting of the seed. So there is no reason for us to think that, on the one hand, the narrator of Genesis would have considered, be lenient about the wasting of the seed in this case, but yet absolutely severe in the case of a homosexual act. So, for instance, in Leviticus, homosexual acts are called wicked and abominable. And that's a similar qualification of what Onan did in Genesis 38.10. Here's the other interesting thing. Most of, the common, most of the modern commentators are trying to tell us that God punished Onan for something that Onan did not do. He did not honor the dead. He did not give his brother a, a son. He did not, right? They frame it in the negative. Yet verse 10 is very clear. And what he did, not what he did not do, was displeasing to God. What he did was displeasing to God. Therefore, he did a detestable thing, which is essentially spinning the sun. Now, here's a reference for you that I'll give you. Encyclical Casti Canubi, 31 December 1930. And here's what Pope Pius IX saying. Wherefore, it is not surprising... Well, actually, a little bit of context. After roundly condemning as intrinsically contrary to the natural moral law all practices which intend to deprive the conjugal act of its procreative power, the pontiff gave an authoritative interpretation of this biblical text, which not only confirms the tradition, but is itself confirmed by impartial and historical well Okay, informed exegesis. Here it is. Wherefore, it is not surprising that the sacred scriptures themselves also bear witness to the fact that the divine majesty attends this unspeakable depravity with the utmost detestation, sometimes having punished it with death, as St. Augustine recalls. So the Pope is quoting St. Augustine. And here's St. Augustine. For it is illicit and shameful for a man to lie with even his lawful wife in such a way as to prevent the conception of offspring. This is what Onan, son of Judah, used to do. And for that, God slew him. Pope Pius IX, St. Augustine. Now, let's look at it in the overall context of Genesis, what we've heard so far. All right. What is the blessing that God gave Adam and Eve? Be and multiply. What is the blessing he gave to um, Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. What is the blessing he gave to Jacob? Be fruitful and does God sounding like a broken record? How many blessings God has? One. All the blessings in the scripture can be brought back to this one blessing. Be fruitful and 
Multiply. Okay. Covenant. I just said blessing. What is the opposite side? Curses. Okay. Curses. Now watch. Watch what, what happens here. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? Well, yeah, they disobeyed God. But what was they going after specifically? Knowledge of good and evil, right? Knowledge of good and evil. Apart from God. Knowledge of good and evil, apart from God. They took it. That's a form of concupiscence. It's a disorder. Now, how does disorder enter in them before original sin? A whole different question. I'm not going to go there right now. I treated it when we did this chapter. Point is, they were disordered. And they did something, which was what? They took the fruit and ate from it. It was a positive action on their part, which was essentially disordered. And that provoked what on God's part? What did he tell them? What was the curse? If you eat from this tree, you shall... Ah. You see the connection? You see another connection? When a man takes upon himself to decide when he's going to be fruitful and multiply, he's committing the same sin in Adam and Eve. No different. And the result is the curse that we see here, which is death. Now, the objection to what I'm telling you right now, okay, but a lot of people do it, and God doesn't smite them on the spot. Why Onan? You can say God's prerogative, true. But it is in connection to what Judah did to his brother. You see? It is all driven by that covenant. Be fruitful and multiply. It doesn't just mean physically being fruitful and multiplying. Because Mother Teresa did not have her own children, yet we rightfully call her mother, because she was a spiritual mother. And indeed, in her case, she's very fruitful, and she multiplied. Judah is supposed to do the same thing. He didn't. When he sold his brother, when he sold his brother, he cut off one part of the family. It's like similar to contraception. You're taking someone who's, who is supposed to be there and you're making sure he's not going to be there. Now, in the case of what he did to Joseph, it was actually an actual real being that existed. In the case of Onan, it is only the potential that is being cut off. But they both are actually derived from the same intent. And so God shows Judah what he did in Onan, who broke the covenant by being by separating by separating the intimacy from procreation compare that with Judah who went into the harlot now think about that Judah thought of her as a harlot Judah did not spill his semen you'd think if any of the two had reason to do so It'd be Judah. Observe that God sees what Onan did as a much greater sin than what Judah did. In fact, in the case of Judah, she was fruitful. Not only that, guess who is the firstborn in the line of Judah? The guy named Perez, who was born out of this 
illicit relationship he had with his daughter-in-law. Now to us this might seem puzzling, but in that situation where all these marital relations were already broken, God works what he has. He has to bring the grace of the new covenant to restore marriage to what it was supposed to be. But God does not see that as a heinous sin as much as he sees this as a heinous sin. Now here's another thing that is really scary, and this is what's provoking me to speak about this issue yet again, as I said in a separate series. In Deuteronomy, when God has these, this is an abomination before the Lord. So there's a number of things that we can do which are called abomination. Not everything is called abomination. There are a few of those. They are related to homosexuality. They're related to anything that distorts the relationship of man and woman is called an abomination. It's one of the grievous things that men and women can do. And guess which one of those, which verse falls into this category? A woman shall not wear men's clothes. It is an abomination before the Lord. Our, our, our conscience has been so torqued in this world that we live in that we don't even see it anymore. We don't even see it. That's why it's going to take me probably a couple, two hours, you know, a good two hours to go through this step by step and explain <clears throat> the relationship between all these verses and how it is viewed in the context of a married relationship between a man and a woman and why it's so important to God. I mean, the, only, the most important image that St. Paul uses of Christ and the church is what? The bride and the groom. Right? The book of Revelation, the most important moment is when the church, the new Jerusalem appears, and she appears like what? The bride. So the, the gist of it is this. this, is it. this is, I'm going to give you the gist right now. It is impossible for a man and a woman to have a true understanding of heaven, a true understanding of the Trinity, a true understanding of who God is and God intend for us. It is impossible for a man and a woman to purify their intention and live a holy life before God if they do not understand their roles as man and woman. And when women wear men's clothes and behave as men, guess what happens to them? There is a fundamental confusion about who they are in their nature in the presence of God. They're working against themselves. So essentially, the value of the society have penetrated even the most devoted Catholic homes today. That's why it's such a grievous matter. And we'll talk more about that in that tape, as I said. All right. Now let's keep on going. I hope you understand now that really these modern and new interpretation of Onan and trying to severe it from masturbation and contraception simply don't hold sway when you put in the overall context of Genesis, of Deuteronomy, and of Scripture, and most importantly, of the Covenant. And go back, and if you read them, if you read those commentaries, they read a bunch of them, one thing they will never mention is the word covenant. Okay. So, very briefly, I essentially covered what I wanted to cover in this chapter. The other thing is, obviously, uh, Judah went, goes up, and um, um, Tamar's intent is simply what? To get what, she, what, what is her own. And um, <clears throat> she plays this little stratagem on him, and she asks of him what? His staff and his signet. Essentially, the key to the car and uh, his, uh, his, uh, his signing power. That's what she gets from him. It's very important for us to understand he gave those to a harlot. This is what a man gives when he goes and sleeps outside of a marital relationship. He degrades himself. He loses his royal kingship that he receives from God. Right? And she gives it back to him once he's ready to burn her because now he's all, you know, how could she do such a thing? 
right? And she just reminded him, okay, and who did it? I kept silent, but who did it? You did. You did. And out of her, therefore, you have the two sons that come. Right? And we'll leave it at that. I could speak another three hours on this text, but essentially I've covered what I wanted to cover today. Questions? Very good question. Why? I'll give you, you know, I have quite a few quotations on this. I'll give you one from St. Ephraim, which is, I think is very beautiful and interesting at the same time. If I can find it, uh, just give me one quick second here. Okay. Ephraim the Syrian, she knew God was pleased. While Tamar was making supplication to God for these things, behold, Judah came out and saw her. The prayer of Tamar inclined him, contrary to his usual habit, to go to a harlot. When she saw him, she was veiled, for she was afraid. After the word of the sign for which she had asked had been spoken, she knew that God was pleased with what she was doing. Afterward, she revealed her face without fear and even demanded remuneration from the Lord of the treasure. And he has another quotation, uh, which is also very interesting, which is here. When Sheila had become a young man and Judah did not wish to bring her back to his house, Tamar thought, how can I make the Hebrews realize that it is not marriage for which I'm hungering, but rather that I am yearning for the blessing that is hidden in them. Although I am able to have relations with Sheila, I would not be able to make my faith victorious through Sheila. So St. Ephraim's commentary on this sees in Tamar a woman who saw that the Hebrew had blessings and she'd rather be with Judah than with Sheila because of the blessing she would receive from him. She was not driven. All the fathers are in accordance in saying that Tamar was not driven by lust. Rather, she was driven by what is her own on a natural level, but on a supernatural level, that she really hungered for the blessing that would come from the Jews and that God heeded her prayer because the Savior was to be born out of her. That's the, 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 the interpretation that is given here. Yes. Is it possible that God still strikes people? Because absolutely, God strikes them all the time. No, God is good. God is perfect. God does not do bad things to us. God is just. Yes, God is just. He gives us our due. In a covenantal relationship... There is a strong party and a weak party. The strong party is God. God sets the rule. Our job is to follow Him. It just so happens that God is not a tyrant, but God is very, very good. Hence, the rule is for what is good for us. When we deviate from the rule, God will strike us with temporary curses in the intent to bring us back to Him, and we will persevere. He gives us exactly what we want. As simple as that. It's not more complicated than this. So, today... The way God strikes those who actually um, are in the sins of contraception is by giving them rebellious children. Prior to 1932, the word teenager didn't exist. We spoke of youth. Teenager came to the rise with contraception. And the reason why we have rebellious children and children killing children in schools is the curse that comes from contraception. As simple as that. The question is, if the son is born, what would happen then? Then that property allotted to the brother. Let's say you have two brothers, right? Uh, Jimmy and Johnny. Johnny passed away. If Jimmy is to perform the leveret um, um, duty towards his brother, he would give his sister-in-law a son. Let's call him uh, Tom. Tom would not be... Uh, no, who died? Yes, Tom would not be the son of the living brother. He would be the son of the dead brother. Therefore, the property of the dead brother passes on to his son, not to his brother. However, the young son has no authority over his, his uncle. 
Yes, they're separate now. They're two separate families. He cannot be, even if he's the son of the firstborn, right? He cannot be now having authority over the brother. They're completely separate. That's it. He takes what his father would have gotten, but not, he has no authority over. Correct. Yes. Yes. The next eldest brother in turn would be the authority in the family. What if the woman already had sons? In the, in the, in the, in the, in the law of the Deuteronomy, then the leverage is not required. But in the, in the Hittite law, it was still required. Right? Which is very interesting. Because of the be fruitful and multiply. The more sons you give to your brother, the greater is his personal glory. It's the honoring of the dead. Right? The honoring of the dead. No, 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 no. It's not just about the inheritance. It's the honoring of the dead. It's very important. Yes. So you honor the dead. Remember when Protestants say, well, you know, the dead don't matter. No, they really matter if you understand the Leveret law. This is, this is why I'm insisting on it. Yeah, it's both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, economically played in The way it was supposed to do is suppose you honor your brother. Yes, absolutely. The 12 tribes of Israel, the belief in eternal life came progressively, and not all Israelites or Jews believed in it as was evident when Jesus was speaking to the Sadducees, who were priests, and they did not believe in the resurrection. Well, what does the original 12 tribes of Israel mean? Is it when Judah had his own family, or is it when he became 12,000? Yeah, at the time, at that time, even as we've seen in the previous chapter, in the case of Jacob, Jacob said, I shall descend to Sheol, to my son. In Judaism, there was not an, 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 a notion that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Right? So therefore, this life was very important. Yes, yeah, the abode of the dead. It was, not a very, it was a gloomy place. It was not very pleasant. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. So is there a relationship between all the cases where God strikes someone dead on the spot? I think we need to distinguish between the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament, as you said, it was related to anything that um, defiled or touched upon the relationship of the people of God to the temple. Right? So in the case of uh, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant going to Jerusalem, the, um, the man who put his hand on the, on the Ark, he was not supposed to touch it, because what did this Ark represent? It represents, really, the church. Right? And you are not supposed to touch someone else's wife. Right? She is set apart. And that's why he, he, he was killed. The two sons of Solomon was also smitten in the temple because they've used an ungodly fire. Same thing. They've entered the, 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 the temple and used a fire which was not holy. Hence, they've introduced something in that relationship as priests representing God and the temple representing the people of God, this marital relationship that is not supposed to be there. And every other case that we've seen has to do with Anything that deforms the relationship between a man and a woman. That is abominable to God. Why? Because it is a deformation of the family. And the family is the earthly representation of the Trinity. Therefore, it's a deformation of the Trinity. And that's why it's called an abomination. Because it's a complete disfigurement of that reality. In the case of the verse that speaks of women wearing men's clothes, the problem with that is that the cloth defines you. And you're taking on the role and identity of a man. Hence, it's an abomination in the, guise of, in the eyes of God because you are not representing the way a family is supposed to work. The body is very important to God. The body and what the body signifies 
is of supreme importance to God. Importance to God. He created us in a certain way for to represent this. Body is theology in flesh. Hence, the way we cover the body is of supreme importance to God. And when a woman puts on men's clothing, she's not only putting on men's clothing, she's putting on a men's function. Hence, the really strong reaction I got from this, I was really naive. I thought, I'm just going to mention it, and a woman will say, oh, all right, we'll change. Oh boy, was I in for an awakening. I had far more stringent reaction to this than I had for contraception. This tells you how insidious this is and how it had planted its heart in, the, in, in it, its, um, its root in the hearts of women because they know today in a society that is completely conflicted and confused where the power is. And women these days thrive to be made in the image of men, not an image of Mary. And that's what's at heart of the whole thing. Okay? And they have a hard issue with pants, not wearing pants, and veiling themselves in church. The veil, the veil on their heads is there to represent what exactly? The tabernacle. The tabernacle is veiled. It is covered. It means she is set apart. She's the garden. Right? She represents the church. The man is supposed to uncover himself. Why? Because covering for men is a sign of what? Power. Power. Okay? Power. Have you ever seen a man go into battle without a cover? They have all fancy covers and, you know, why? Power. He's supposed to uncover himself because when he enters the church, he must conform himself to whom? To Christ. Ah, he wears the tiara, which represents the two horns. These are two horns, the two horns of power. Why? Because what is the function of the Pope? He has a special charism. He, in his person, represents what? The Holy Spirit among us. That's why the church is infallible. Because the Holy Spirit, God, lives in the church. That's what you see when you see him wearing this. Not, look at me guys, I'm the strongest. Right? That's a special function the Pope has supposed. But even the Pope, when he's celebrating liturgy, what does he do? He uncovers himself. Why? The king of kings is here. You uncover yourself. Women have such a hard issue with this. All tied into this is also the issue of them opening their arms in prayer now in the Latin rite. It dawned on me finally why they want to do it. Because the position they take is not that of a mendicant. They don't put their arms down there as saying begging. They're not a position of a beggar. No. It's a position. It's a male position. It's a position of power. Arms up. Palm up. That's a position of power. Who does that? The priest. It's so insidious, it has completely disfigured the understanding of masculinity and femininity. And that's why most of these women, most of the women, are restless. They're not who they're supposed to be. They can't find peace. They're half men, half women. That's why it's an abomination. It's a disfigurement of the truth that God wishes to instill in the family. Now, there's a reason why men are to blame for this. I'm not blaming the women for this, but I'm blaming the men. But even carrying this across is such a hardship today. It's very hard. Women get really upset with this. Any other question? Oh, the question is, so he slew his two sons, right? He gave him, essentially, rebellious sons. 
And then, through Tamar, he gave him a righteous son, Perez. That's why St. Ephraim, in his wonderful intuition, says, well, obviously, he cannot be out of Judah. The blessing's through him, but not of his personal conduct. It must be through her. Through her own prayer, because Judah sent her back to her father's house and say, remain there until my son is of age and he will go to you. And she obeyed him. She didn't go here and there and did this. She did not complain. She did not write to him, text him, send him email calls. You know, you know, what are you waiting for, etc. She saw that the son was of age. And she understood he's not going to give him, give him to me. Right? So she goes and she plays this role, which is the only way she can have to attract his attention. Because she doesn't do it with Sheila, which is really interesting. She did it with Judah. Right? And she doesn't refuse his, his, uh, his entreaty. She welcomes it. And that's why St. Saint, uh, Saint Ephraim says it is because she knew of the blessing. That's what she wanted. Now, remember, in that system, number one, she's not married. The two sons are dead. She doesn't have a husband. Number two, in that system, men could have more than one wife. So effectively, other than that little subterfuge she played on him, she did not commit a grievous sin. Right? Back then, yes. It happened all the time. Yes. Why would God? Because it was already stated that it will come through Judah. You see, remember what I said about there are what we call blessings for others, and then there are sanctifying blessings. I can stand here in front of you, teach scripture, and because of you, you might change your life and become saints. I can still go to hell. If I am not working on my own sanctification, all of this is for nothing for me. How do we know that, St. Paul? I can raise the dead, I can perform miracles, I can do this and then the other. If I have no love, I have nothing. Now, he doesn't say love of whom, but I think you know. Love of God, right? So, always keep that in mind. It doesn't mean that because we see somebody doing wonderful things, that he's therefore a saint. Judah was with Jesus. Judah may have raised the dead, performed miracles, did a whole bunch of stuff. We don't know if he did or didn't. Possibly he did. At least he witnessed it. He lived with the master for three years. And look what he did. Yeah? God right straight with crooked lines. Mother Angelica. Yes. No, she, she went back to his father's house, but when he discovered and wanted to burn her and find out what happened, uh, presumably kept her with him. Because he took on the, the children. There's his children, as you see in the genealogy. No, he did not have a relationship with her. The intent is to show that Judah was not lusting after her aside from that one event. Right? And that's why St. Ephraim says, God put it into his heart to do this, which is contrary to his habit. Because after all, Judah was not a man who went left and right and did all that sort of stuff. Right? So all of this, I, I, I didn't have time to get into it, but it would be really beautiful, mystical meditation on text following St. Ephraim. Right? But that's what, was in, what is intended here. Any other question? All right, let's end with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.